We are uh, gathering together in this last service, this message today. I'm going to do really kind of a little bit more of a teaching session than I normally would on a Sunday than preaching. Uh, but I believe it's just because it's teaching, it's not any less powerful because it's still the word of the Lord. But we are finishing up uh, today. For those that are that maybe are new, we are part of a group called Destiny Ministries. My wife and I are, and we've got a couple. Of, well, we've got one that's actually going to their leadership institute right now. Renee's going through that, and uh, others that are connected. Our leaders had a gathering. It's been about a year ago now, and uh, so we're we're excited about what God has done through Destiny. But they challenged us in light of the time that we're living in. To do a four sermon series uh, entitled Love First. And they gave us some messages that uh, we could use or not use. I've, I've used uh, really two of the four. And uh, last week I, I told you I used Pastor Brett Jones where it was sit where they sit and when Jesus stooped before he said anything. Uh, and so I'm excited about what God has done through this. It just seems to be the right timing. Um, like I said, we're dealing with situations that call for love. And I got to thinking this week, I, I spoke two Wednesday nights ago on love in enemy territory. Uh, last week, Stoop, where, where, where or sit where they sit, this last week, I talked about uh, the third way. Uh, and on Wednesday and then today I, I realized that I've talked about love I've talked about how it operates but I haven't talked talked about what it is and so today I want to describe for you what love is according to scripture and as you're listening to this today I would uh, encourage you to receive it in two different ways the first way is let it be a reflection of what you have received from the Lord. And then secondly, the challenge to then reflect what you've received from the Lord so that others can receive from the Lord through you. You see, at, at Spirit of Grace Church, our, our mission statement, if you will, is to become spirit-filled, spirit-led, and Christ-like. And uh, it's fun to preach about being spirit-filled. It's fun even to preach about being spirit-led. But sometimes we got to get down to where the rubber really meets the, the road and begin to be Christ-like. And that's where it begins to get a little bit harder because being spirit-filled and spirit-led is left up to the spirit. Being Christ-like is our response to being spirit-filled and spirit-led. And we've got to respond appropriately. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to be reading from the NIV today. Uh, and that's what's going to be up on the scriptures and or up on the screens. And we're going to kind of go verse by verse. I'm going to teach you this chapter, if you will. And uh, almost like we would, in a similar way to do what we do in Grace College, uh, which we have a couple of weeks left tomorrow. And probably two more weeks after that, you're still welcome to come and be a part of that. What is love? A teacher was doing a survey and asked a question to a classroom of four to eight-year-olds. And the question was, what is love? 
And here's some of their answers. I thought these kids were brilliant. Billy, age four, said this. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Carl, who was five years old, said it this way. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> Danny, at seven years old, said love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. <laughs> Danny doesn't know she's just taking a sip just to take a sip. Bobby says this, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening the gifts and listen. Tommy, age six, said this, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. <laughs> and then Chris said it this way, he was age seven, he said, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Robert Redford. What is love? Author and lecturer Leo Biscaglia once talked about a contest that he was asked to, to judge. And the purpose of the contest was to find out the most caring child. And so the winner was a four-year-old child and uh, whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. And uh, upon seeing this playing out in the yard, he saw this elderly gentleman crying the little boy went into the old man's yard, climbed up onto his lap, and just sat there. And when his mom asked him what he had said to the neighbor, the, the little boy said, nothing, I just helped him cry. You see, what we are going to break down today is the true meaning of love. And I want to make a couple of statements before we get into this, and that is this. Love is not an emotion. Not true love, okay? And secondly, you can't fall into love. It's like I tripped and fell and all of a sudden I love. No, you can't fall into love, okay? We, we use that terminology, well, I fell in love with Trisha at this point in time. No, I made a decision to love Trisha at that point in time. Love is a decision. I, I tried to hammer that into our young people as we were youth pastors and, and we still have some people that, uh, some of the kids will, uh, I mean, I really brought it out a lot to where uh, they'll even say it now. And, and I'm encouraged because they, they, they received that. Because love is a decision. And, uh, and everything else is a byproduct of that decision. And we're reading 1 Corinthians 13, which is a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. And really, if you look you have to remember that the Bible was not written in chapter and verse, okay? It was written in one deal and people came later and broke it up so that we can reference it and so we can find our place to find different things in scripture. And so when you look at the Corinthian, uh, the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there are full letters that were to the Corinthian church. So really when you read it as a letter, chapter 12, 13, and 14 are really one unit of a letter. And chapter 12 talks about the context of the Holy Spirit's work through the believer. If you wanna know how the Spirit will work through you, read chapter 12. Chapter 13 is the motivation behind using 
the spiritual gifts of, of chapter 12. And chapter 14 lets us know the proper operation of those gifts. So in chapter 12, Paul lays the foundation. And the foundation is simply this. We are all part of a system uh, and that to, to do God's work, we need his spirit to work through us collectively and individually in whatever way or with whomever he should choose. And each part of the body, the body of Christ, and each gift that that part of the body has is just as important, even if it may not be as, quote unquote, flashy as other gifts and other operations. And so Paul ends chapter 12 by saying this. And now I will show you the most excellent way. You see, we, we get all excited about the spiritual gifts of chapter 12 and, and, being, and using them and seeing the spiritual gifts in operation and touching and changing people's lives. But Paul gets to the end of that and he says, but I've got to tell you, that's nothing compared to what I'm getting ready to share with you now. This is the most excellent way. No matter how gifted you are, no matter how successful in ministry you are, no matter how close you think you are to God, there is one overarching principle that should guide everything that we do. And that is simply love. Otherwise, anything you do for the Lord is just business. And I fear that there are too many people in the church world that have become so busy for God that they've become too busy for God. Some of you will catch that in a minute. You become so busy doing things for God that you become too busy for God. You become so busy in operating your quote-unquote ministry that you haven't taken the time to sit back and say, God, I've gotten so busy with the business of the kingdom that I forgot the king of the kingdom. And I want to spend some more time with you. And so that's why Paul says that this is the most excellent way is love. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is probably the most famous chapter on love. It's quoted at weddings routinely. It's used so much so that almost when you read it and you listen to it, it becomes uh, trite. Uh, it becomes a Hallmark card. And we start reading chapter 13 and all we get is, you know, happy anniversary inside the card. And this is a, a, a quick recap of what love is. And that's what it's become for us. But really, it is so much deeper. There was a, a gentleman back in the, I think it was 65, that released a song that says, what the world needs now is love, more love. <coughs> like saying the word love makes it all better. It's all that's needed. But it's far more than that. It's more, far more challenging than that. So I want to challenge you today. This may step on your toes a little bit today. It's challenged me. It's made me think twice. It's made me operate twice because I'm just like you are when something happens to me by somebody else or something's going on around. We get frustrated. We get angry. We want to lash out. We want to prove somebody wrong. None of those things are love. And so I want to challenge you today. First of all, in chapter 13, Paul talks about the need for love. So up on the screen, if you can start with me, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You know, when I read that, I think of the gong show. 
not as old as some others. <laughs> and, and you think about that show, you come out and you do a town, if they don't like it, they hit the big gong and it, it reverberates. Well, just picture that with what Paul is saying. You may speak in tongues every day, or the tongues of angels. You may, you may have the most wise way of saying things, of writing things, of doing things. But if you don't have love, you're just like the gong show. Verse number two. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, can I just tell you that I have been around the church my entire life for the most part, and I have sat in services where people have gotten up, and the gift of prophecy has come over them, and the gift of wisdom and knowledge, and their faith comes. I've seen them uh, be used in healings and such, but I've spent five minutes with them after service, and I feel dirty. Because there's no love coming from that. There's no haughtiness. Or it's all haughtiness that comes from that. It's arrogance that comes from that. I don't like that. And that's what Paul is saying. You can be used in all those other areas. But if you don't have love, you're not going to have a connection. Because here's what I have come to understand. That miracles happen. Prophecy happens. Knowledge and wisdom happen. Not so much because of the vessel, but because who's trying to receive the touch of the Lord. And why, why I say that is because in the Old Testament, God used Balaam's donkey. And so I, in fact, looked at a friend of mine. We were listening to somebody talk about how God was using them. God's using me to do this. God's using me to do that. God's using me. God's using me to do that. And, and, and I finally stopped and I said, yeah, but he uses donkeys too. He didn't know how to respond to me. I said, I'm glad that he's using you. But you need to have an attitude adjustment. He's not using you because you're better than anybody else. He's using you because you're coming into contact with somebody that needs him. And he will use a donkey if he has to, to get to that person. Next time I met him, his attitude had changed. You see, it's got to have love. It's got to have love. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. No matter how much I know or how much great wisdom I may be able or may not speak, no matter if I utter incredible mysteries and I can wow the masses with writing and terminology and all kinds, I might as well just be honking my horn in, in, in a traffic jam unless I do it with love. No matter what I can do, healings, miracles, signs, wonders, whatever, without love, it is meaningless. And this one really kills me because I've heard this all, all my life. If I give, no matter what I give of myself, my time, talent, resources, energy, if I just get busy for God, I can be the most humble person and the most giving person on earth. And I can even give up my life for the faith. But if I'm not following in or flowing in God's love, I have nothing. And I might as well not even be doing it. Those are strong words, aren't they? Those are, hmm. Those challenge me. Those are like the sculptor with the chisel and the hammer knocking little pieces off of me. 
I thought I was really something for that moment of time until Jesus got a hold of me and said, well, you're really not all that. What kind of love is this? Here's, here's, here's the thing. Every time the word love appears in chapter 13, it is the Greek word agape. And this is different. There's three words for love in Greek. The first one is filial. It's the idea of brotherly love or friendship. It, that's where city of Philadelphia gets their name from. And, and, and it, I, I just got to tell you that brotherly love and brotherly friendship, filial love, is probably not, well, I know it's not agape love, but it's kind of, it, it's not an unconditional love. Uh, I love my brother. I, I really do. He, he, he's a great guy. He's a great father. Has six kids. But when we were growing up, he and I went at it from a time to time. And if I really wanted to be honest, it was more of the sisterly love that we struggled with growing up. I love my sister. I still love my sister. But we went head to head oftentimes growing up. Filial love is kind of like this mentality. It's you, I can say whatever I want to about my brother or sister. I can fight with them as often as I want to. But the moment you do it, you're going to have to deal with me. That's filial love. Then there is eros love. And it's the idea of sexual love. And, and, and then the third word, which uh, didn't really appear until the New Testament, is agape. It is selfless love. The love that, you have, that God has toward us. It's not, a, it's not a love of word, but it's a love of action without regard to self-interest. It is really the character of God. I had to laugh this week during the presidential debate when they said that this has become an election of the character. Listen, this is the character we want. Right, left, in between, unknown, politically, it doesn't matter. This is the character that our country and our world need to see. This is the character that, that God is wanting to reveal through you and me. And if we would grab a hold of this and become a people of agape love, people will see something different. In fact, John said it so strongly in 1 John 4, 8. He says, whoever does not love or agape does not know God because God is love. God is selfless, selfless. Can, can I just tell you something? I want you to think about something before we go on a little bit more. How many people do you think has voiced their hatred for God? Their anger toward God. Their blasphemy toward God. Their hypocritical stances before God. And yet, what does God do? He loves them. He loves them. In fact, God has been accused of sending people to hell. But you won't find that in Scripture. What you'll find in Scripture is that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't send anybody. The only thing that God has ever sent to hell or destined for hell is Lucifer and his angels. Everybody else that ends up there has made a choice some point in their life. 
not to follow after the Lord. Everything you strive for, everything you want to be, what you want to do, how you want people to think of you and what you want to accomplish, everything should go through this filter. Am I doing this with selfless love? Am I operating in selfless love? And before we go on, remember that it is from the Holy Spirit of chapter 12 that we get the power to live this kind of life. Don't think that you're going to find this kind of love in worldly philosophy or philanthropy or religious piety. Only a person who is hand in hand with Jesus can have this kind of love because the Bible says God is love. So if you don't have love, God, you're not going to have this kind of love. So I want to look at the character of this love for a few minutes. Paul defines for us what agape means. He does it in terms of what it is and what it is not. There are eight things that agape love does and eight things that it does not do. So starting at verse number four, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So eight things love is. Patient, kind, rejoices in truth, protects, trusts, hopes, preserves, and never fails. And eight things it doesn't do. Envy, boasting, pride, rudeness, self-seeking, anger, holding grudges, to delighting in evil. Those are some pretty strong terminologies. And I want to take just a couple of minutes with each one here today. Patient. Love is, I don't know why Paul started with that one. I honestly think he started with it because I believe that Paul struggled with patience. Ask John Mark about that. John Mark didn't want to do it. He gave up on John Mark really quick. Barnabas had to come behind him and, and train up John Mark. And the word patient comes from two Greek words. It's a compound word. And it means this. Long-tempered. Vines says it this way. It is self-restraint in the face of provocation it's the opposite of anger. So my question to you today is this. Do you have a short fuse? Do you get easily frustrated when things don't go your way or don't happen fast enough? Do you retaliate easily and quickly against those that hurt you? That's the opposite of patience. If you dwell in those three things, if you do have a short fuse, well, well, Pastor, that's just the way that I'm made. No, that's the way that you've learned to be. Or should I say it this way? You became that, but God's wanting to change you. Because God is love, and he's wanting you to reflect his love. God has, is the most patient person I know. Because you're still here. And I'm still here. He's so patient with us. Patience means that you wait out trouble and you don't strike out against adversity. I want to say that again. You wait out trouble and you don't strike out against adversity. None of us likes adversity. Because there's something in us as humans that we, for the vast majority of us, want to fight. 
We want to argue. We want to get back. We, we, we think if it's not fair, if it doesn't apply to us. Paul, or Peter describes it like this. Humble, you'll, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up. Here's what humbling yourself under God's mighty hand means. You wait under God's hand. So when the war is going on around you, when everything is falling apart, when people are irritating you, they're treating you wrong, they're, they're even abusing you, rejecting you, abandoning you, if you're hand in hand with God, just wait under his hand. Just be patient. Just humble yourself and say, God, this doesn't feel right. I don't like this, but I'm going to hold my tongue. I'm not going to fight back. I'm going to trust that you have me in your hand. You see, when you're waiting under God's hand, you're not running to trouble. Therefore, you're not running from God. You see, when we run to trouble, we're running away from God because the Bible says this, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Love is kind. The word for kind means to show oneself useful. Taking patience one step further. Not only are you long-tempered against trouble, but you actually reach out with a benefit to somebody else. It comes from the root word meaning employed. Now, I told you this was kind of more of a, a teaching session, but I, I, I need to, you need to grasp the, this concept of love. If, if we're wanting to be what God wants us to be and be effective as God wants us to be effective, I've got to learn to be patient. I've got to learn that other human beings aren't traveling the same speed I am. I've got to understand that other human beings aren't doing it the same way that I'm doing it. And while I might want to kick them in the tail and say, do it this way, God is saying, just be patient and pray with them and be there with them because eventually I'm going to do a work in them and there's going to be a transformation in them that you can't do and I can't do. Problem is, is, that's hard for us to do. You may think that you're kind, but sometimes it's hard to be kind. Paul emphasizes this over and over in his letter to Corinthians. He says it this way in 1033. He says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that many may be saved. You see, most of the time, if you're honest with yourself, we think about what's in it for me. That's not always a bad thing, I guess, if, you, if it's in a certain circumstance. But kindness doesn't say, what's in it for me? Kindness says, what can I do to benefit you, even if it costs me something? Okay, I've said this a long time, but we do everything backwards from God. We're, we're taught from a very young age. We're trained like puppy dogs. You think about it. Think about how we treat or, or train our kids to eat. I don't know about you, but I, I don't remember this. I only know it because I watched them do it with his grandkids. But my mom and dad would put the food on the spoon, and they would start the airplane trying to get me to open my mouth. And then when that didn't work, they would try it and say, see how good it is, now you try it. Okay? You see, they're trying to, and so, okay. If I get dad to play plane, airplanes with me, then I'm going to get some good food. 
And then we learn a little bit longer in our training. If I just clean my room, I can get away with doing just about anything I want to do. I can go outside, Mom? Yeah, if your room's clean. Then as I got a little bit older, it was more of the dishes done. Is the trash taken out? You know, those chores. And so what we learn without even realizing that we're learning it, we're learning that if we do something, we're going to get something. And then we become a little bit older and we go to work. And I don't know about you and I don't recommend this to anybody. But when you sit down in an interview for a job, what are some of the things that you're wanting to know within the, the, the confines other than what are you expecting of me as an employee? You're wanting to know this. You're wanting to know what's the hourly rate. You're wanting to know how much vacation you may get. You know, I want to know if there's a 401k. You're wanting to know what the sick leave rule is. You're wanting to know what's expected of you. I don't know of anybody that's ever sat down in an interview for a job that's looked at the boss and says, it doesn't matter what you pay me. It doesn't matter what 401k. It doesn't matter what your vacation is. I, I, I just, I want to serve you. You tell me how best I can do that. How many have ever been into an interview like that? You see, we're trained to be totally opposite. And we take that over into our walk with God in dealing with people. What can I get out of spending this time with this person? I'm going to show an act of kindness, not just to do it, but because I want to see them saved. I want to see them do this. I want to be a part of this. I think if I do this, God's going to give me this. And we've got that mentality stirred up into our spirit. Then Paul strings the eight negatives together. Envy. Envy means it comes from the word to boil. It's a bolstered idea of what's in it for me. In the sense of it's all about me. Sometimes we can become so self-focused that anything anyone else has that we don't gets us upset. God, I know that kid's a crook. And he's got a nice brand new car. And I'm driving a 70-year-old rust bucket laundry van with no seats in the back, three on the column, with no muffler. <laughs> that was me, by the way. <laughs> and I go to church 15 times a week, it seems. And my dad pulls the tithes out of my chore money to make sure that I pay it. And I go to Sunday school, and I go to Hobby Club, which was the Christian hobby thing that we did on Tuesday nights, and I go to youth service on Thursday nights, and my dad takes me to this service, and I can't go to this for school, and I, I don't get involved in that, I don't go to the parties and the dances, I don't do any of that. God, I think I should be getting something out of this. Instead of a rust bucket fan with my neighbor, friend, and in my 16-year-old thinking, hasn't lived for an ounce of God, gets the nice car. Envy. Envy is when we only want to benefit ourselves. Boasting is, a, is an extension of envy, and that's if you've got it flaunted. Can I just tell you one of the biggest turnoffs for me personally when I deal with people that do things for God is when people tell me about the things they do for God. Just do it. Just do it as unto the Lord 
And that which you do for God in private, he'll reward you in public. And that which you do in public, people will be turned off on if they don't know it came from that which was done in private. Does that, does that make sense? The boasting of it. You, you play the braggart. It's, it's a, it's, if you don't have it, pretend that you do. The, the, then the next one is love is not proud. It's not puffed up by something that they think that. It, it, here's what pride is. It's blowing hot air into a hot air balloon. It's inflating. You become a bag of hot air when you're proud. It's a lot of fluff. There's no substance, but it's not. And, and then you've got rude. The word rude means unshapely. You're not even pretty to look at. Do people have a hard time being around us? Then it's self-seeking. Self-seeking doesn't mean selfish. Self-seeking means self-worship. If it's more important for you to spend three hours in a mirror to make yourself presentable, to go out more than it is to reach the person that's out there with the love of Christ, chances are you are self-seeking. Not easily angered. This one hurts. Means to exasperate. Love doesn't exasperate. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's hard. Can I tell you, God challenged me about, man, it's already been 20 years. About 20 years ago. He said, Tim, if you're going to be anything in the kingdom of God, you're, you're going to have to erase every record after every conversation. And I said, okay, God, if that's what I'm going to have to do, you're going to have to give, give me the spirit that you have, and that is the spirit of forgetfulness. And can I tell you, over 20 years' time, God has blessed me with that. <laughs> In some cases, probably even more forgetful than what I really want to be forgetful of. But can I tell you that it's easy to not hold a grudge when you don't remember the fault? I haven't held a grudge in years because I... Because the Lord dealt with me specifically about keep no record of wrongs. In other words, realize that all of us are humans and we're all jerks. Okay, let me put it in King James Version to make it sound a little bit better. There's none of us that are good, no, not one. Is that better than calling all of us jerks? That's the King James. There's none righteous among us. In fact, all of our righteousness is as filthy rays. And when I understand that, when I understand that there's really no good thing in you unless God has put it there, it means when that which is not good comes out, 
that's not from God. That's from something that that person is struggling with. So why should I attach myself and write the record of that which is not good, that's not from God? Why should I remember that instead of coming back to that person the next time I see them and not see that thing that was there but see God in them again? If God can forgive and forget, I need to be able to forgive and forget. And when I have forgiven and forgotten, I can't hold a grudge. Just like God doesn't hold a grudge when you are asked for forgiveness and he forgives you. And the Bible says he casts it as far as the east is from the west to remember it no more. And yet we go back over and over trying to repent of something that we done that we had done. And God looks at us and says, I don't know what you're talking about. You're asking me to forgive you something that you have not done. Well, yeah, God, I did it then. But you've already asked me for forgiveness. I've forgotten about it. And you're still dwelling in something that isn't even there anymore. You see, part of keeping no record of wrong is not just me keeping record of wrongs of others that have done things to me. It's no keep no record of wrong on my own. If you have found a place of repentance in God, your past has been erased. Stop dwelling upon the times that you messed up. Stop keeping that record of wrongs because the wrongs have already been obliterated from your record if you are in the hands of Jesus. So my, my challenge to you is to start even loving yourself enough to not keep a record of wrongs. But we're taught that that's what happens. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. <laughs> he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Dave is coming. <laughs> From a very young age. And we're trained that God is sitting in heaven. We put God in the place of Santa, and we think God is sitting up at his heavenly desk, and he's saying, okay, Tim, you messed up this, 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 and this. You did okay on this. You did really good on this. That's not how God operates. God does not have any record. Here's the only record of God that he has. Is my name written down? When I bring up Tim's record and I see Jesus' blood, good enough for me. Amen. It's the reason why the Bible says that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Our testimony is, I had a laundry list of stuff that I was, but the blood of the Lamb washed that clean, and now I stand justified and sanctified in the presence of God. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices in truth. Can you, can you see that the things that it does not do, the negatives, if you will, are all about us? And the positives are all about somebody else or something else? And I, I'm coming quickly here to an end. But it rejoices in truth. We have to learn how to rejoice with one another. Rejoice is the opposite of delight in evil. 
The Bible says this, weep with them that weep and rejoice with them that rejoice. Can I tell you that rejoice isn't just a high five and, and a hallelujah? A re rejoicing means we get excited about what God is doing. I love watching Facebook and watching a lot of our members put out there, this is now one year sober, two years sober, three years sober. And, and, I, and as I'm reading it, I'm rejoicing with that testimony. I, I want to just... It can't just be a momentary deal. Rejoicing goes beyond just what you say in that moment of time. But rejoicing goes to the next week when you see them. Are you still rejoicing with them? Are you still happy with them? Are you still excited for them? Because everything that you and I overcome through the blood of the Lamb on this earth... We have to overcome it almost on a daily basis. It's the reason why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a daily rejoicing. It's the reason why Paul wrote in Thessalonians, rejoice evermore. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. You see, all this business of love isn't a magical rose-colored glasses kind of feeling. It's really very specific. Love and trust God no matter what and seek the best in those around you. And then help them as they draw closer to God. You see, here's the thing. Why did God, why did Paul put this in chapter 13? Why did he do it? Smack dab in the middle of a statement about spiritual gifts. It has application far beyond the gifts, but it speaks directly to the attitude of the believer. Here's the reason why I agree with Destiny Ministries that this is the time and the season. We are living in an age when love must be magnified. Yeah. It must be reflected from heaven. Here's the reason, and we're going to come to a close here. The reason why we need to have love. First of all, love is supreme. Verse number eight, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Listen, all of the goosebump kind of things in the kingdom, I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. I love to hear people prophesy. I love when revelation comes. I love when the Spirit moves across and people speak in tongues and worship before God. It's wonderful. It's great. But there's coming a day when it's not going to happen anymore. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Prophecy is imperfect. Tongues are imperfect. Those are imperfect. And here's the reason why they're imperfect. They're imperfect because we are only in the presence of the Spirit of God. We are not in our heavenly home yet. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face... Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 
What you find is that love is the ultimate expression of who God is. Selfless, others focused, always giving. And then he closes out the chapter with this. There are only three things remaining. Prophecy is going to go by the wayside. Miracles are going to go by the wayside. The things that we like to experience in church, they're going to go. There's three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Can I tell you why? It's simply this. Faith is what we do towards God. Hope is what God does toward us. Love is what God does through us to others. It's the reason why it's the greatest. It's great that I can reach up and grab a hold of him. And it's great that he gives me hope. But man, I don't know about you, but have you ever sat with somebody that you're talking to and the love of God pours through you and the eyes of revelation come to the person you're talking to? I, so I get more excited about watching some of you get touched by God than me getting touched by God. For God so loved the world. Now listen, I invite you to stand. Taking on the character of the Lord in love does not happen overnight. You may wonder, how can I ever be patient? How can I ever really be truly be kind? How can I ever master these things? Well, Paul said this. When I became a man, I put away childish things. In other words, you grow into it. Don't beat yourself up. Just know the direction that you're heading. Love is an action, but it's not a fireworks display. Don't make the mistake that the Corinthians did, or even the Pharisees. Showing love means an attitude and action, but love is often very quiet, not seen, unobtrusive. Can I just tell you and just give you an example? Some of you it applies to, some of you it's, it's never really applied. But I hope that when I preach and when my wife sings, you feel our love for you. I hope that that comes across. But can I tell you when most of you have really experienced our love? Is when we've sat down in an office and you were hurting or you were going through something and we were able to spend some time with you. Nobody in here knows it. Nobody in here knows what we talked about. Nobody in the building knows what you were going through when we sat down with you. You see, love comes in that unobtrusive, quiet time when nobody else is watching. It's an action, but it's not a fireworks display. Don't expect fireworks when you reveal the love of God. I told you that this was more of a teaching. When I teach, I want to give you a bunch of stuff to think about. When I teach, I, I, I want to give you steak, potatoes, medium, baked, fully loaded. <laughs> With the house salad, 
bottomless Diet Coke. Are you getting hungry yet? We're almost there. And that was my purpose in this message today. This is not something that you can just say, okay, I'm going to do it. This is something you're going to have to let marinate in your spirit over the next several days. This is something you're going to have to think about. This is something that you may have to go back and replay the lesson and be able to see when I preach, when I preach, my, my purpose is to bring you to a decision at that moment in time that can be done in an altar type setting and you make that decision and then you marinate on it. But, 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 and then when I preach, I kind of mix it all up. But when I teach, and that's what I, that's what I tried to do today, I want to share with you, God is love. Trying to think how the old song goes that I remember being raised on. All I remember is the last ending, First John 47 and 8. That was the end of it. Everyone that loveth God knoweth God. You see, I want you to know God. And the only way that you're going to ever know God is if you learn how to love and love first. Because the love is the greatest of these. I want you to have faith. I want you to have hope. But more than all of that, I want you to love. I want you to love God. I want you to love others. And I want you to love yourself. Here's, I just felt this in the spirit. There's somebody here, you've been beating yourself up. You're sitting there saying, yeah, pastor, it's, I actually find it pretty easy to love others. And to love God, yeah, but I, I just can't. When I look in the mirror, all I see is a mess. Can I just tell you, then you're not looking through the eyes of the master. You're looking through the eyes of your flesh and the eyes of your enemy. Because when God looks at you, you are the apple of his eye. He loves us so much. And if the one that died for us and the one that loves us the most, if he can love you, why can't you love yourself? 